0: This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Merlin Sheldrake. Merlin is a biologist and a writer, and he joined me from London to talk about his new book, Entangled Life, how fungi make our worlds, change our minds and shape our futures. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on Three Triple R FM with me, Amy Mullins, and I'm delighted to have with me on the show today Merlin Sheldrake, who is a biologist and a writer, and he's written a book called *Entangled Life: How Fungi Make Our Worlds, Change Our Minds, and Shape Our Futures*. And it is a really fascinating read. I'm sure everyone's probably using that adjective at the moment, and um, it is. Really, really fascinating because fungi is such a mysterious uh, kingdom of organisms. And I'm so excited to, to delve into this with Merlin now. And I welcome Merlin, who is joining us from London. Hi there.
1: Hi, great to be here.
0: It's really lovely to have you on the show and to talk about something which I know is really capturing the imagination of a lot of people recently, and it seems to be only gathering in awareness in terms of fungi and and that critical role that it's playing under the ground, in the soil, and connecting up so many different things, but particularly trees. It certainly is one of the things that sparked so many people's interest.
1: Absolutely, yeah. There's a real um, fungal moment happening right now.
0: And in terms of fungi, there's so many entry points, I guess, to this topic, but I thought maybe we'd start at something that's pretty basic, which is thinking about what types or forms of fungi there are it would be interesting i think to a lot of people to realize that what we think of as fungi as in mushrooms and that fruiting body we see on the top of the surface is not actually um, the full picture of what fungi can be and of course there are also things like yeast which are also a form of fungi so first up i wanted to ask given your experience as a scientist and a biologist. Could you explain to us, for those uninitiated into the world of fungi, what it is and what types of forms it can take?
1: Of course, yes. So, so fungi is a kingdom of life, which means it's as broad a category as animals or plants. Um, and fungi can take uh, a number of forms. There's, you know, there's a very, um, there are huge numbers of fungi. It's a very diverse kingdom of life. And some fungi are single-celled, like yeasts, and these fungi live as single cells and divide to form new cells. And um, they don't grow into multicellular organisms. But most fungi live most of their time as branching, fusing networks of tubular cells called mycelium. So when you see a mushroom, you're looking at a fruit. It's analogous to seeing an apple on an apple tree. And most of the organism is either below the ground or embedded in the source of its food, a rotting log, for example. And so mycelial fungi are these dynamic networks which pour themselves into their environment and digest it from the inside. So animals put food in their bodies and fungi put their bodies in the food and mycelium is the way that they do this.
0: And in terms of these kind of forms of fungi, what does a mycelium network look like?
1: So there are many ways to be a fungus. And if you grow mycelium on a dish in a laboratory, what you would see is a fuzzy white circle, um, a bit like bread mold, that kind of fluffy texture, which is made up of all these you know, fine filamentous cells. Um, you see a kind of fluffy white circle expanding across a dish, but that's a very artificial setup. And most fungi don't live in these kind of unconfined environments. Most fungi live boring themselves um, between cracks and crannies in crowded rotscapes uh, in the soil or in logs. And so what a mycelial network looks like depends entirely on where it's growing. And uh, It's one of these puzzling aspects of fungal life is that you can't really ask what shape a mycelial network is without knowing where it happens to be. Um, it's a bit like asking what shape water is. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that would be a bit of a challenge you begin the book describing an experience of looking under the surface or in the soil and what's going on with tree roots and and also um, mycelium. And not just the visual elements to that, but also the smells of it, which smell seems to be a very important part of your area. And certainly when I've discussed fungi before it seems like it is also an important element to identification of different types of fungi. So I guess I wanted to ask you talk about being a field biologist versus being a lab biologist and the types of experiences a scientist might have, and also the different kind of power dynamics that one can have. In terms of field biology, for example, and and that experience of working with fungi, how have you got to work with fungi in that intimate way? How have you approached it and sought to understand it visually and through the senses? Because it seems like that would be such a challenge and maybe far more of a challenge than studying things that seem to proliferate above the ground.
1: Yes, that's, that's right. And I spent so much time wrestling with this problem of how to have direct and unmediated contact with my subject matter Uh, When I was working in Panama in in the tropical forests there, uh, the fungi that I was studying were these fungi that form symbiotic relationships with plants and grow out of plant roots and lace through the soil. And these fungi don't produce mushrooms. So I didn't even have mushrooms as a way in. And so when I went to to collect samples, I'd usually be collecting samples of soil, which I'd then uh, extract DNA from or extract various fungal fats from and I could use those chemicals to analyze uh, who was where and how much of who was where. Um, but that was very mediated. So this did, you know, this weighed on me after a while because in this bustling busy world of the jungle uh, there are so many way- ways to be a living thing and the things that I was studying um, seem to be so out of reach. And the, so I would also spend time looking at them under a microscope and this was a bit better because I could actually see them growing uh, between the cells in plant roots in this very intimate embrace, and but you're still looking at dead fungal cells which have been embalmed and rendered in false colours. So there's still this distance that you have from them. So there are other fungi which you can study and have a more direct contact with. Those that form mushrooms, of course, you can find the mushrooms and pick the mushrooms, eat the mushrooms, smell the mushrooms, etc. So there are other ways in. But in my case, it was uh, always a challenge to find a way to connect directly.
0: And throughout this book, one really has their eyes wide open to the fact that there is such diversity in the fungi kingdom in terms of the visual nature of them, but also their behaviour. There's so many different aspects of fungi, and it seems to be quite an unpredictable kingdom. It doesn't seem to follow a kind of set of rules. There are so many divergences in the types of fungi one can encounter, So I was interested in the introduction in the book because you were introducing, I guess, a lot of those challenges that a scientist would encounter in studying fungi and the philosophical things one might grapple with, which I think a lot of us potentially would not realize or or think about. And one of those things that you bring into the conversation is This idea of individualism or individuality and defining certain species as an individual and saying, well, that's that species you really, really pull back the curtains and show that things aren't that simple, they're not that delineated, and our categories seem to be quite artificial and at times perhaps not the most accurate picture of what's happening, particularly in in regard to the fungi kingdom. So I did want to ask about this idea that you bring in about the individual and and also bringing that into the human arena and showing that, you know, even as humans, we're not necessarily that individual and humans are, are colonized by fungi and bacteria and viruses. So, you know, even to define a human as a self or an individual is kind of a falsehood.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And this, this was really driven home to me when I was at a conference in in Panama um, all these people studying tropical microbes and we all gathered together to share our, our studies and our knowledge about these tropical microbes bacteria fungi etc and um, someone got up to give a talk and they were talking about this group of plants that produced a certain type of chemical in their leaves and this was the chemical that we used to identify these plants and a diagnostic feature of these plants and they said actually it's a fungus that lives in their leaves that produces this chemical so in the, in the, in the audience we had to redraw at real time in our minds, our conception of what this plant was. And and then someone said next to me, they leant over and said, I think it's the bacteria living inside the fungus, living inside the plant. And and, and I laughed, but this is a kind of story that happens all the time in the microbial science. And someone's like, no, actually, I think it's the virus inside the bacteria, inside the fungus, inside the plant that produces this chemical. And this really is the story of microbial sciences. And most people in the microbial sciences are familiar with this kind of uh, intimate Russian doll kind of symbiosis, and but of course all life forms are involved with this intimate reciprocal dependence with other life forms that live in, on, and around them, uh, as humans do. As you say, we have uh, trillions of of bacteria and fungi in our guts and on our skins and in our orifices, without which we wouldn't grow and develop and behave as we do. Uh, we depend on these organisms to to be what we call ourselves. So this idea of uh, neatly bounded individuals is not something that stands up to scrutiny when we look in the biological world. And you realise quite fast that it's an idea that humans have to help us behave in the world and do certain things in certain ways. It's more of an assumption than a fact. And so fungi make lots of questions about our categories in general and individuality in particular, because you can have fungal networks which confuse with other fungal networks to form larger networks. You, in these networks, you have bacteria Travelling through these networks like highways through the soil, you have bacteria surfing along the slimy film that coats these fungal cells to navigate the cluttered obstacle course of the soil. Uh, you have these fungal networks which are growing in and around plant cells and nourishing plants and being nourished in return by plants, are sustaining these plant ecosystems which would not otherwise be able to survive or indeed uh, would not have evolved in the first place in the way that they have. So fungi are these fundamentally interconnected organisms, and they make literal this very basic principle of ecology, which is uh, that of the relationships between organisms and the relationships between organisms and the places in which they live. Um, So these are some of these ideas about individuality. And it's just an example of the sort of question that fungi can raise for us to to challenge some of our uh, well-worn human totems.
0: Mm. and um, you use some interesting terms like it brings to mind biological dark matter or dark life you know not being able to really truly see or understand something and this whole field is really so much in its infancy in terms of our true understanding of what's happening and you raise following up from that point, this idea that scientists are always deploying and requiring the use of their imagination and that that doesn't seek to undermine science or it shouldn't be viewed with suspicion, but that it's actually an essential part of doing science, particularly in this realm of mycology and fungi. So I wanted to ask about your imagination and Certainly your Instagram is really illuminating and I think the videos that you've, you've posted up there of how fungi behaves, you can kind of see some of the things visually, like you can see spores being released from, from mushrooms above the ground, but there is, a, I guess, a limit to what we can see in these videos. How are you deploying your imagination and using it to start to understand what's happening when you're studying different kinds of fungi?
1: Yeah, it's a really big question, and I think a really important question for us to wrestle with. It's often the case that people assume that scientists are cold-blooded, uh, hyper-rational individuals acting in a in a kind of um, you know emotionless and robotic fashion, which is totally you know, the opposite of the truth. You no, know, scientists are, of course, people with you no know, whole, intuitive, imaginative humans, full of feelings and interests and um, passions and concerns, and. And so the practice of the sciences is always filled with this um, these basic these basic aspects of just warm-blooded humanity. Mm. Um, and I like to think of the sciences myself I, I, as, as formalized curiosity. There's elements of formalized skepticism too, but I see that as part of the bigger picture, which for me is formalized curiosity. And curiosity is always driven by imagination and imaginative involvement Um, with the world, you know, what happens if I do that? I wonder, you know, the sense of, I wonder, I wonder what would happen if I did that. That's all this curious, uh, imaginative part of ourselves, which um, I think drives a lot of people uh, into scientific inquiry, um, or at least maybe once originally drove them into scientific inquiry, hopefully continues to do so. But, um, (laughs) but, so I I find the way to engage imaginatively, um, one simple way is to, examine the metaphors that I use uh, or that I'm being asked to use. So we're often told, um, we often have aspects of the living world explained to us using metaphors, often machine metaphors, based on uh, mechanical uh, models and mechanical language imported from the human life. And of course, we need metaphors to make sense of the living world because so much of it is taking place out of the reach of our unaided senses. Um, But metaphors, are always limited, and that's also what's fun about them. Um, but rather than become trapped, say, in one metaphor, um, to realise that one's using a metaphor and realise that there are other metaphors too that you can use, so to switch metaphors. Um, so, for example, with the fungal world, there came a point in my studies where I realised that I was thinking about them as these kind of mechanical, schematic entities that uh, behaved you know, in some kind of Game Boy logic, uh, a funny you know, early video game 8-bit pixelated logic Mm -hmm. (laughs) and i wondered why why am i imagining these organisms like this these this is clearly not what they are Uh, these are organisms engaged in the process of living in a way that i haven't been able to see directly or experience directly because they are embedded in the soil why am i trapped in this very limited view and so i tried to i tried to think of them in other ways as well and to to demechanize them, to think of them as these uh, organisms um, unfolding themselves into their environment, um, sensing their environment, um, you know, bathed in a, a field of sensory information and negotiating a whole range of choices and problems that they had to handle in order to survive. And, and that really animated them for me. and And so that's an example of the way that I think we can attend to our imaginative involvement is by Yeah, it's by making questions uh, of the frameworks that we're using to understand.
0: It reminded me of a discussion you had with Robert McFarlane when i was reading the book underland you were talking about with robert the idea that we're using very human concepts even those kind of capitalistic concepts of you know a transaction between organisms when you're thinking about how different organisms like a plant and a fungi are interacting and why they're interacting what are the organisms getting from each other out of this relationship and whether that is of use or not in your field. And I guess given that we have these frameworks or these, as you highlight these preconceptions, they can kind of create these blind spots and you talk about um, your friend David Abram and and the role of preconceptions. And of course we all have, cognitive biases which help us to operate in our environment so that we don't have to keep looking at things with fresh eyes. But I was interested in how that plays a role in thinking about fungi and how one strips back one's preconceptions. And, and it brought me to that really uh, fascinating story you recount of being involved in a, a scientific study, a very, very, very interesting one involving LSD. And I wondered if you could share with us how one can step outside of our preconceptions. And of course, this is an example of a scientist stepping outside these kind of traditional ways of thinking.
1: Yes, yeah, so so I told the story with, with my friend David Abram and the way he does conjuring tricks. And he learned this lesson early on where he was doing these magic tricks around the tables in a restaurant. And when he had finished doing tricks and people had paid up the bill and had left the restaurant, and they started coming back in and, and, and saying, what did you do? The sky was bluer than when we came in. The, the sidewalk was you know, had a straighter line along the side of the road. and you know, The car was shinier and um, the way, rain was cooler. Um, and he realized that the magic strips were changing the way that people perceived the world. And his his reading of this was that we use our preconceptions to make sense of the world, as you say, to, rather than have to form an entirely new perception from scratch, we use preconceptions and update it with little bits of new information. And so it's our preconceptions that create the space in which magicians do their work. Because when the coin is not in this hand, but you were, you were, sure, were sure that it would be, it's your preconception that puts the coin in that hand um, and it's not there and your preconception is is trounced by this trick and after a while the the grip of your preconceptions are loosened by these magic tricks because again and again they're proved to be false and so when people went outside uh, rather than seeing what they expected to see they saw what was actually in front of them and so there's this sense of loosening the grip of our preconceptions and allowing us to actually look Uh, and actually try and perceive the world as it is. And I use that story because I find that fungi do this to us. So fungi certainly do this to me, and I do it to many people I know who study fungi, where their behaviours are so surprising that many of the things that I just assumed, these basic protocols that living organisms would abide by, were being digested and decomposed by these organisms, which challenged me to think in new ways. The familiar would start to become unfamiliar. And so in the LSD study, there are these very brave researchers who were doing the study, and they were trying to, to study the way that LSD might help scientists and mathematicians approach old problems from new angles. Could LSD help these researchers to, to think in new ways about problems that they were, we were stuck with or had not made progress with? Um, so everyone showed up with a, as a research-related problem, and everyone had a bedroom, a, a sort of room in a hospital wing in a clinical studies unit of a hospital, and we were given LSD and then uh, had an assistant to make sure we were okay. And after a while, when we'd reached cruising altitude, as they said, um, we were asked to think about our work-related problem. And so I was trying to imagine these relationships between plants and their symbiotic root fungi, and... So I found this a really helpful experience because I I ended up in this sort of strange sort of vision of being in the soil surrounded by all of these sort of alien creatures doing unfamiliar things and had this this sort of unsettling journey through a a subterranean netherworld, which was enjoyable and and amusing and and, and an adventure. But it's not that this taught me new facts. I didn't These are just these are visions, uh, psychedelic visions. Now, this is not new facts. This is not scientific information. It's, it's for me, it was. It's not even wrong. You know, there's no claim that I make about the sort of factual validity of these visions. But what was helpful about this experience was that it helped me to approach the situation from a new vantage point. It helped me to, to see the frameworks and assumptions that I brought to this question every day. And it helped me to question those frameworks and assumptions. It's a bit like if the problem was a sort of knot that I was trying to untie, the LSD experience helped that knot to loosen a little bit. It helped to ventilate my inquiry. And so for this reason, it was very helpful. And so the LSD in that case behaved a bit like the magic trick in the David Abram story in the sense that it, it made the familiar uh, seem unfamiliar. And in doing so, opened up new avenues of inquiry, and made open questions seem more exciting and more comfortable.
0: It sounds like it would have been very, very helpful. And I think visually, some fungi are what we expect, and I guess conform to the stereotype of what we think is a mushroom, the fruiting body that's on top of the ground. But there are also some fungi that when I look at them they seem so otherworldly that that also kind of jolts me out of my preconceptions and even just my ideas of what nature is and what it should look like. And there's some just a a wealth of imagery on Instagram from people who are just as obsessed about fungi than than me or you. But um, there was one on your Instagram feed, you you shared a spore release from a puffball of fungi, a fungi puffball, and it showed this Huge release of spores coming out of it. And just seeing that up close and kind of seeing the process that you would not get the privilege to see as a a basic observer without all of that set up opens your mind to the fact that they're doing things that nothing else does. And one of the things I wanted to ask about that, particularly about spores. I hadn't really thought about the role of spores or the function of them and uh, and what they can actually do and why a mushroom releases spores. And I wanted to ask about that. What is a mushroom doing? What is a puffball <laughs> doing when it's releasing spores? Because as you say, fungi produce 50 megatons of them every year, which is equivalent to the weight of 500,000 blue whales.
1: <laughs> I know, it's an amazing fact, isn't it? yeah. So spores, are, fungi use spores a bit like plants use seeds to disperse themselves. And like plants, fungi are—they um, live their lives embedded in their environments. They don't have twitchy, muscular bodies like animals. They can't walk, bite, fly, swim. And so to move from place to place, they produce these spores. And spores, many types of spore, travel um, in the air. They're very light. And, and with the puffball, you can see this um, emanation of spores being ejected into the air and it's like a, a current of particles and what's amazing is fungi are the largest source of living particles in the air so those 50 million tons of fungal spores produced every year they drift up into the stratosphere and they influence the weather they nucleate water droplet formation and they um, they affect patterns of precipitation and um, it's a really big deal and so these spores are traveling around and then when they settle, they, uh, they can start growing into a new fungus. So, so really, it's a dispersal strategy. And there are many ways to do it. You know, so we talk about these, the puffball, which is you know, ejecting spores into the air. Uh, but many types of fungus don't do that, and they produce spores which travel in other ways. So some of them, for example, um, truffles are perhaps the most famous example of a fungus which produces spores which aren't adapted to air travel because truffles live underground entombed in the soil and they don't look appealing because they look like kind of clods clods of fungus but they smell very pungently and they produce a very elaborate um, bouquet of aromatic chemicals which can travel through through the soil and then into the air and travel through the air and then reach an animal nose and i'd be so curious and fascinating to that animal nose that the animal will drop what they're doing and run after this scent and dig up the truffle, eat it, carry it to a new place and deposit the spores in its feces. So these truffle-producing fungi have worked out an entirely different way to deal with the problem of getting around
0: it reminded me, I can't find the exact line now, but you were referencing the fact that the smell of a truffle seems to have evolved over such a long period of time. And um, obviously, in order to survive and spread its spores around, it needed to generate the greatest smell for its purpose or intentions. So I was interested in the, the role of evolution, given that you go through in certainly in one section of the book about some of the oldest forms of fungi that have been proven or shown to be in existence and that, you know, some of these forms of fungi are still here and some of their behaviours are still in practice. And I was really interested in in that and how evolution plays such an important role in the life of fungi as well.
1: Absolutely. And, and so with truffles, I think of these organisms, you know, that the, the... The truffles that survive the best will be the ones who produce aromas that are most appealing to their most effective spore dispersers. So you can think of a truffle's smell as a fungus's portrait in scent of animal fascination, in the same way that flowers are a kind of vegetal portrait in colour and form of animal visual fascination. You know, there are orchids um, that mimic perfectly the bodily form of uh, female bees and entice male bees with this sexualized, um, a sexualized rendering of their animal mate. So this is a a common theme in evolution where you have a a co-evolutionary dance over thousands and thousands of years. And fungi do this all the time and have played played roles in the evolution of many organisms. So for example, plants, when the ancestors of plants were algae, these water-dwelling photosynthetic organisms that were living in a kind of nutrient broth. Um, And when they washed up onto the soggy shores of lakes and rivers about 500 million years ago, they were faced with a new challenge. And the challenge was, how do they extract nutrients from the ground? Uh, How do they, take up water from the ground. You know They're used to, used to being stewed in their water and in their nutrients, and now there's a new kind of problem. So what happens, we think, is that they struck up a relationship with fungi, and these fungi are experts at exploring and foraging in the ground. And so the fungus behaved as their root system. Um, the, pl- the alga photosynthesized and ate light and carbon dioxide in this process of photosynthesis and gave the fungus energy-containing carbon compounds like sugars in exchange for nutrients and water that the fungus could find from the soil. And so for the first 50 million years of plant life on land, fungi were the roots of plants. And so roots, plant roots followed fungi into being. And to this day, all plants uh, have these relationships with fungi in their roots. Um, 90% of plants have them, um, and the remaining 10% have less Uh, less formal relationships, but they still have fungi living within them in their leaves and in their shoots. And so what we call plants are really algae that have evolved to farm fungi and fungi that have evolved to farm algae. And when you look at a plant, you're looking at the outcome of a co-evolutionary story with fungi that continues to this day and will continue long into the future.
0: Gosh, that's so fascinating. And in that section, when you were talking about truffles, It did surprise me that you were saying that truffles have long been associated with sex, that they are an outcome of a sexual encounter, and that in particular, allure underpins many types of fungal sex. And I was interested in the concept, I think, of mating types and how different types of fungi find mates. And I wondered if you could share with us that um, really interesting relationship.
1: Yeah, so fungal sex is, is a very large and strange subject that we don't understand nearly as much as we should. And it's very confusing, and fungi do sex in so many different ways. But in a simple case where you have two mating types approximately equivalent to our sexes, and you can have, so for example, with truffles, you have two mating types. To make a new truffle, those two mating types have to meet with each other and um, combine their DNA, combine their genetic material to produce a new truffle. Um, to find each other, they have to use pheromones to do so. You know, otherwise, they wouldn't stand a chance. So, like many types of organisms, they use a chemical. This is the what I mean by this allure. The formation of a truffle is underpinned by allure uh, to allow these mating types to find each other. But once they've found each other, um, either mating type can play the maternal or the paternal role. The maternal role being the one that Uh, provides the flesh that grows into the new organism node and the male, the paternal role, providing just the genetic information. So it's as if humans were intersexual and could play the role either as male or female, but you still have to meet someone of the opposite mating type. Then this is a very simple example in the fungal world. There are fungal uh, species that have about 23,000 mating types and we don't understand nearly as much as we should about how they uh, how they go about regulating this huge sexual diversity. Um, but it's, it's, it's a fascinating subject. And many fungi, of course, can reproduce without sex. You can take a fragment of a fungal network and it can turn into a entirely new organism. And you could do that potentially forever. So you know, f- fungi under the right conditions um, can be immortal, effectively immortal.
0: <laughs> Lucky them. Um, I was shocked when we were thinking about how that genetic transfer is occurring and um, and how they combine, I guess, when they're having sex. In one section you were writing about how a lot of um, fungi can get that DNA test and you can kind of figure out what a fungi is comprised of and if it's the same type of fungi, because as you say, the mycelium networks are spread out you know, across kilometres underneath the ground and it's very, very hard to actually know which one is which, and if it's the same one. And I was wondering about that DNA and genetics and how one brings that in and and what significance does it have when you're studying fungi under the ground as a scientist, as a biologist. I'm sure there are many questions that a biologist is looking at when they're utilising things like DNA and genomic sequencing.
1: Yes, so there are lots of questions you can ask. Um, Fungi are uh, a bit strange with the way that they Deal with their genetics, and and it's not always straightforward at all. So, for example, within a fungal network, or rather in an animal body, when you look at an animal cell, in almost all animal cells, you'd see a a kind of a boundary which is a membrane, and you'd see inside that cell you'd see a nucleus, which is where the DNA is contained. And cells were called cells by Robert Hooke in the 17th century when he. Looked at cork cells under a microscope and saw that they looked like rooms. So cella means room in Latin, um, so he, like a monk's cell, you know, with a bed and a desk and neatly bounded room. And so, we we have cells that behave more like that almost all of the time, but fungi don't have these neat separations between cells. And in fungal networks, nuclei can pass in flocks along these networks from A to B. And so they have these kind of delocalized nuclei passing through fungal networks, often in uh, remarkably rhythmic patterns and kind of pulses. Um, The nuclear traffic through fungal networks is a really fascinating subject. Uh, And I have some videos of this on my uh, Instagram. You can have, even in a single spore, you can have multiple nuclei and multiple nuclei from different origins, from different fungi. So it's not always straightforward to go about just applying the genetic tools that we have developed for animals and plants onto fungi. In some cases, you can do it. In many cases, it's very complicated. But the sort of questions that I was dealing with most of the time um, are quite simple questions um, about who's where. And these are questions that you, you know, it's a bit like a paternity test. You know, you can use a bit of a DNA which you can use to identify that type of fungus. And if you sequence all the DNA in a sample, you can build a picture of the community. You know, what, what fungal species are here? more or less, you know, it's always a bit approximate. But that's quite a big deal, because then you can start to find out who lives where and when. And just being able to do that is a big advance on before, because with a microscope, you can't distinguish between all these fungal types. So that's one thing that I was using DNA, DNA for. There are many others, of course.
0: Absolutely. And it does bring to mind discussions around fungal behavior and coordination and what's mycelial coordination. And, you know, you think of humans, for example, we have a brain, um, we have a spine, a central nervous system with nerves that, you know, come out into all different areas. And that's how we sense things. But then as you write in this book, fungi is just so different in that regard. There is no central nervous system. There isn't technically a brain. And um, it reminded me about the fact that you said there were a couple of fields of science that have helped you start to understand how fungi may behave or what the mechanisms are for them being able to to sense different things, to make decisions about where to grow out to. And one of those was about slime molds that are not a fungi, which is interesting, although mold, as you say, true mold is a fungus. But I wanted to ask about, you know, that concept of a brain and a central nervous system and, you know, decision-making and how that's happening. And obviously it is, as you say, such an early area of research, but where are we at in terms of understanding how, for example, a mycelium network is making decisions about where it should grow and what material it should eat? Where are we at with that?
1: Yeah. So we know, we know that fungi can coordinate their behaviors and can coordinate their growth with amazing precision. And um, if you have a fungus growing on a block of wood and you produce another block of wood and place it near that block of wood, the fungus will grow out from the original block of wood in all directions. And when it touches the new block of wood, it will start thickening the connections uh, with the new block of wood and will start retracting the connections that it was sending out in an exploratory fashion, but which don't actually lead to any new food. So these networks continually remodel themselves and to do so, they need to be able to integrate these many data streams that are flowing into their body through their senses. Fungi can detect light, temperature, pressure, uh, all sorts of chemicals, acidity, gravity. They're sensing sensitive bodies. And they raise all these questions for us, as you say, because they don't have a brain. They don't have a center of operation. We're so used to looking for centers of operation that this is something that really confuses us. And slime molds have been a big way in, as you say to this, to this question, because not only do slime molds not have a brain, but slime molds are one giant cell. There's nothing that resembles a, a neuron. So these brainless organisms are able to navigate mazes, um, solve all sorts of spatial puzzles, and yet uh, don't seem to be able to have some, they don't have some central place where they can integrate these data streams. So how? do this is the question and and we're really not that sure when it comes to fungi with slime molds they use oscillations that travel along uh, their various arms the branches of the network and these oscillations combine and reinforce each other um, in a kind of sort of rhythmic and less rhythmic fashions um people describe them as as a kind of analog computer and um, fungi seem to be doing something similar, but we're not exactly sure how they're doing it. Now, they pass chemicals through their network, but that's quite slow. Um, they change their, you know, the flow of liquid through their network. That could be uh, an important part in the way that they coordinate their behavior and can send information from one part of the network to another. Um, and very fascinating studies have found that some many types of fungi conduct impulses of electrical activity analogous to the impulses that travel in animal nerve cells, Um, And this is a very promising possibility and and would suggest that fungi use electrical impulses to coordinate their behavior across larger distances. And so um, these are all really big questions right now in the fungal world. And and at its core, what we're talking about is how they integrate um, perception with action. This is really the question. And given that they don't have a centralized place to do so, uh, they must do so a little bit everywhere. And so fungal coordination seems to take place nowhere in particular, and yet everywhere at once. And this is one of these um, confusing aspects of fungal life that the more you think about it, if you think about it just for a couple of minutes, it, it just gets even more confusing. There's a, a, a sort of delicious sense of vertigo, um, I find.
0: <laughs> That's a great way to put it. I can't really imagine doing this work all the time, every day and having so many mental puzzles that come up and (laughs) you feel like you're in a parallel universe and (laughs) everything's very different. One of the things that was really funny, because there are some funny parts in this book, was the fact that slime moulds are able to find the quickest exit out of an Ikea, which I feel like is probably one of the greatest gifts it could possibly give (laughs) me, um, <laughs> <laughs> it was just amazing to think about that.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that's my, my. I have this funny friend who who keeps slime molds, and and so he was getting lost in this IKEA store, and and he to, so he built this a miniature version of the IKEA store, the same ground plan, um, and exposed his slime molds, put his slime molds into this maze, um, and you know his his joke was that he can't get out of an IKEA store without asking people who work there to help him to point him to the exit. Um, but without anyone to point them to the exit, the slime molds were very quickly able to find their way out of the store. So his joke was that the slime molds are smarter than him when it comes to IKEA store <laughs> navigation. And that's a recurring theme with these network-based organisms. The way that they can they deal with complex spatial problems does seem to be more effective and more efficient than human minds.
0: Mm. It's not that surprising when I think about it that they're so good at that. I mean, they've had so many millions of years to evolve and be good at that I guess. I did want to ask about you know in the second chapter when you're talking about mycelium and and we've just mentioned there you know that idea of a brain and a central nervous system I wanted to just clarify the idea of hyphae and hyphal tips and what that really is in terms of the mycelium and mycelial network and If someone's trying to understand the role of hyphal tips or what they are and what they might look like, I wondered if you could just shed some light on that and what role they play within the mycelium network.
1: Yeah. So if you imagine starting with a single spore and then imagine a spore sprouting to produce a single uh, elongating cell, and fungal cells are called hyphae. So this this would be a single hypha and Hyphae grow from their tips, so rather than dividing and piling layers of cells on top of each other, which is what we do in most of our body, a liver is made by piling liver cells on top of liver cells, our fungal cells, they grow by getting longer. So this hypha would get longer, would elongate, growing from its tip, and then all this action is taking place at its tip. If you look several centimetres back from its tip, that part of the hypha has ceased to grow. Um, so the action is taking place at its tip and that tip can then branch and then you have two hypha uh, exploring but they're linked because they converge at one point where they are once one hypha and those two hypha uh, can branch again and, and branch again and soon this one hypha turns into what looks a bit like uh, a sort of tree branching system but these hyphae don't just branch they confuse with each other so over time those different branches will start to fuse with each other, which is where it differs from most trees, which tend to have branches that diverge rather than converge. So over not very long at all, this one hypha would have become a a ramifying network, exploring the space around it. And each of these edges of the network would have its own hyphal tip, continuing to explore, um, continuing to branch and continuing to fuse with other hyphae. Hyphal tips are really you know, where a lot of the action happens in a fungal network. And so when you look at a, you know, a collection of fungal tips exploring their environment, it's tempting to think of these tips as the basic unit of the mycelial network. It looks like a swarm of hyphal tips. The swarm analogy runs out pretty quick because you, um, in a swarm you have lots of individuals acting in a collective fashion. Um, But in this case, these individuals aren't individuals because they're all connected to each other. They're part of the same network. Uh, But so there's this sort of shuttling between um, is this organism plural, a collection of hyphal tips, or is it singular, one coherent network? And in fact, it's kind of both. So mycelium is a, a growth form that challenges our animal imaginations.
0: Yeah, thank you. That was such a beautiful and very clear description. (laughs) I feel like I understand that really much better. I wanted to talk a little bit about the fact that Humans, animals and plants seem to be quite reliant on fungi, you know, in a very essential way for our survival. And we've kind of referenced that already in terms of our microbiome and the fact that fungi, as well as bacteria, are playing a really critical role in so many um, human functions. But it also has a flip side in terms of not only being a utility, but also in some cases becoming pathogenic and that can be the case um, in humans and you reference drug-resistant fungi like Candida auris which is becoming a superbug, a kind of concerning superbug and of course if your immune system is compromised in some way you can start to see an overgrowth of fungi in a human being and they can get very unwell and it can move into the bloodstream and I was interested in this kind of dark side to fungi because there is the light side and then there's the dark side and so I guess I wanted to ask about those behaviours or types of fungi that are, as you say, parasitic and or zombie fungi. And it is one of, I think, in my opinion, one of the most fascinating parts of the kingdom of fungi. And I wanted to ask in particular about a couple of of examples. One that you outline is Ophiocordyceps unilateralis and its relationship with carpenter ants and what it does um, using its hyphae to, uh, I won't even describe it. I'll let you describe it. I think you'll do a better job.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, this is really one of the most uh, unsettling and fascinating aspects of fungal life. And so there are lots of types of fungi that do this, that to, to, to take over insect bodies and manipulate insect behaviour to accomplish some fungal purpose normally spreading fungal spores so fungi don't have these twitchy muscular animal bodies um, so they can borrow one or rather commandeer one and in the case of Ophiocordyceps and carpenter ants this cordyceps fungus will infect the ant it will start to grow hyphae its fungal network through the ant's body and it will alter the ant's behavior normally the ant um, the ant's instincts are to stay very low and to be Uh, suspicious of light and heights but the fungus changes it can override this fundamental instinct of the ants and it can instead make it fascinated by height and light and so the ant becomes infected by the fungus and then starts suffering what is what's known as summit disease which makes the ant climb up the nearest plant and when the ant reaches a height that's optimal for the fungus in some cases in some types of ophiocordyceps a height of 25 centimetres above the forest floor, the fungus compels the ant to bite on to the vein of a leaf, the underside of a leaf, in what's known as the death grip. And at that point, the fungus sprouts a a stalk out of the ant's head, kills the ant, uh, stitches it to the leaf, sprouts a stalk out of its head, and rains down spores on ants passing below. So it's a really... It's, a, yeah, it's an unsettling story and it's astonishing because this fungus is able to, you know, uh, uh, about 40% of the mass of an infected ant is fungus. The fungus becomes a kind of prosthetic organ of the ant's body. And when people talk about this, we talk about these behaviours, summit disease, the death grip, these are fungal behaviours, these are not ant behaviours. And so really an infected ant is, uh, is a fungus in ant's clothing. And this raises all sorts of questions um, about where one organism starts and another one stops.
0: It's very confronting to actually see it. I was really lucky to go to the herbarium at the University of Melbourne and see one of them, which they (laughs) have frozen in time, and it felt like this shocking scene out of aliens, like it was just speared and it looked so painful and, yeah, just really, really not of this world and a very... It was particularly confronting to think that it was so powerful that it could do that and to really just take over another organism and entirely change it. And I I wanted to pick up on that, the, the way that fungi can change organisms and look at another really interesting example in the book which was a researcher at West Virginia University, Matt Casson, was looking at the Massospora fungi, which infects cicadas and causes the rear third of their bodies to disintegrate, allowing it to discharge its spores out of their ruptured back ends. And then, gosh, like the description of flying salt shakers of death, (laughs)
1: <laughs> was pretty
0: <laughs> effective. <laughs> but the the other part of that story, which it gets even more disturbing, if you can believe, was that it changed the male cicadas behavior. And not only did they become hyperactive, but hypersexual. And I wondered if you could share with us what was going on in terms of the chemistry, because you were talking about the, the chemical profile of the plugs of the fungus and It's links with certain recreational drugs.
1: Yeah, It's a really surprising finding. Uh, Matt and his team, they looked at what was in these plugs of fungus. How was it chemically possible for this fungus to be altering the cicada's behavior? And so they, they they analyzed the chemical profile of these plugs of fungus and they found that these fungi were producing psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in um, magic mushrooms, it's a psychedelic in, when given to a human, and also um, cathinone, which is a which is an amphetamine, which is found in the plant cat, which has been chewed for um, a long time by people in North Africa as a stimulant. So it seems to be producing an amphetamine and a psychedelic, and and how exactly the amphetamine and the psychedelic would act on the cicada, and how exactly this would um, alter its behavior, we are left to imagine. Um, but we presume that these chemicals play a role in this alteration of, of the cicada's life cycle, this hijacking of its life cycle. But and it raises all sorts of interesting questions because we don't know too much about how the fungus is able to puppet these insects' behavior. And and different fungi do it in different ways. And disability has evolved multiple times across the fungal kingdom, and many fungi have reached the same conclusion um but from different places. So it's um yeah, it's it's a It's a fascinating study.
0: Mm. It brings to light or makes it clear just how real it is when you say that they're so divergent in their appearance and behaviours and chemistry. And, yeah, it just – I can't even – wrap my head around it um, sometimes (laughs) but that's what is I guess the beauty of the book is that you're bringing in so many different types of fungi as well and helping us understand what they are and one of the really interesting things to me is lichen and I mean I I see all around me lichen I see it on roofs I see it on cars even (laughs) (laughs) Um, on fences and it seems to grow everywhere and I wondered if you have lichen on your car, for example, which I I've got to say I've seen, um, <laughs> you what does that mean? Does that mean you're not cleaning your car probably very often? But also, what is so special about lichen that makes it grow everywhere?
1: So lichens are symbiotic organisms. Uh, of course, all organisms are symbiotic organisms to some degree, but lichens are real symbiotic icons. So they were these gateway organisms to the concept of symbiosis in biology, and. It was through the study of lichens that we actually coined this word symbiosis" in the nineteenth century to refer to the intimate sharing of bodily space without it necessarily being a disease causing relationship or a parasitic relationship. so before lichens were um, before this lichens were revealed to be symbiotic organisms, the intimate sharing of bodily space meant either parasitism or disease, and so they've played an important role in the evolution of human thought. But themselves, they are these astonishing organisms, which are made up of a fungus, or more than one fungus, and a photosynthetic partner, or more than one photosynthetic partner. So either an alga or a photosynthetic bacterium. And they're these little ecosystems. Um, The fungus provides some parts of the organism, and the uh, photosynthetic partner provides other parts of the organism. Together, they form a body that looks completely unlike each of them grown alone. And um, it's a bit like in chemistry, when you combine hydrogen and oxygen, which are flammable gases, uh, they form water, which is something which is entirely unexpected based on the um, outgoing physical characteristics of their constituents. So lichens are like this, they're emergent symbiotic beings and they can live in all sorts of shocking, shockingly intense and inhospitable places because, um, they can form these micro planets almost. You can have the fungus, which can eat rock or can extract nutrients from the air. The, uh, the photosynthetic component can eat light and provide the energy for the symbiosis. And so you have this whole sort of summary of life on Earth. These two major metabolic processes, which you find um, in the Earth at large, are combined into these microbiospheres. And this allows them to live uh, in obscure. Uh, difficult conditions prospering as crusts on the scorched ground um, in deserts ability to survive with very little water or living on bare rock newly exposed when a volcano throws up uh, an island in the middle of the pacific uh, because they can digest the rock and extract minerals from there and then extract minerals from the air and through photosynthesis get their energy so they're very amazing uh, life forms that challenge our understanding of uh, of what's possible
0: And it did bring to mind mutualism and that concept because we've just spoken about parasitism. You say shared mycorrhizal networks can facilitate cooperation as well as competition. And it seems like symbiosis and mutualism keeps coming up in this kingdom, the fungi kingdom. And I wanted to bring up something else, I guess, that creates shared benefit And that would be something that so many people in Australia, and I'm sure in the UK, appreciate, which is alcohol. And the fact that we get a lot out of alcohol, but that also um, requires yeast. Um, and fermentation, for example, and I think a lot of us who don't make alcohol or have an involvement in in understanding how it comes about might take it for granted. And I know that you have um, engaged, you know, in your formative years of interest in brewing certain types of beer and mead and wine and even cider. And I was really delighted to read that you went scrumping and uh, made a scrumpy or two, because it is a really cool thing. And um, I have had the fortune of trying one of them in Australia. And I wanted to ask about something, I guess, um, to finish out the conversation that's a little bit lighter, which is, you know, how we eat fungi or things that are derived from fungi and yeast and talk about things like cider and the fact that you, you really kind of combined the history of science with cider making And yeast in one story and I wondered if you could tell us about that situation when you were touring Cambridge and uh, happened upon Newton's supposed apple tree (laughs)
1: yeah so I was I was on tour of the Cambridge Botanical Gardens with the director and he pointed out a tree that had been grown from a cutting um, from a tree that still grows in the garden of the family home of Isaac Newton and it's a very old tree, and it's old enough to have been the tree that dropped the apple that inspired the theory of universal gravitation and For this reason, this tree is this venerable uh mythologized tree has been propagated in other places from cutting so these these um these other trees are clones of the famous tree and so the director pointed out this very majestic tree, the newton tree um which was growing there in the gardens and was also growing outside the site of his old laboratory in another part of town and um, outside the maths faculty and he was telling us about this tree and, and he said well of course there wasn't an apple that fed on Newton's head it's, it's an apocryphal story this, thing, this never happened um, but nonetheless uh, I was struck by the humour of this because still these academics denying that this story happened had decided to plant these trees in auspicious places around the town and uh, so the story seemed to be both true and false at the same time, shuttling in and out um, of possibility. And I'd been thinking about ciders and making ciders, and I thought this would make a good cider, these Newton apples. So I asked the director if I could take the apples and make a cider with them. And he said, No, I'm sorry you can't, because they have to be seen by the tourists to be falling from the tree <laughs> to add verisimilitude to the myth. And this was just too much. And so I decided that I'd have to go. And just take them after, after dark anyway. So I went and I, I scrumped these apples with a friend and then turned them into a cider, which was delicious, in fact, and uh, called it Gravity. And um, had a lot of fun drinking it. And and it was the beginning of a, of a cider project, which turned into other ciders too. I then went to get some apples from um, the trees growing in Darwin's house and Down House in Kent. And... Um, and turn those into evolution cider, um, and there's many more to come. But it's a it's a great way of dancing lightly around these um, mythological figures and, and turning them into an intoxicating beverage.
0: Yeah, you can have fun with fungi as well and yeast. And you did say that those apples have their own yeasts, and that you know using the organic yeast that's on the apple instead of introducing one that's already known will mean that you're consuming, I guess, a yeast that you can't actually really identify.
1: Yes, exactly. So when you use a natural fermentation, so just when you grind up some, squash some fruit and um, let it ferment by itself, you're using these um, these indigenous yeasts that live on the fruit and have fallen from the air um, sometimes into this brew and it means that you have a complex community of yeasts often a more complex community of yeast doing the job than you would do if you added yeast from a packet um, sometimes it can veer into a rot and become unpalatable but most of the time you end up with a much more complex and interesting flavor
0: just finally, I do want to direct people to your Instagram, which I've already mentioned, because not only does it have some of those really interesting visual videos that you can start to get a handle on what we've been discussing um, and see some of that DNA and the movement of the mycelium, but also, you know, you one of the things and probably the reason why I decided to ask if I could chat with you was that you... Um, you got mushrooms to eat your book, which I just thought was hilarious, and it was a great video of you chopping off these oyster mushrooms from your book, which really—it just, yeah, it totally got me. Um, so I wanted to just finish that the conversation by asking—I mean, that's a pretty great project, but also it seems like a song has also come out of that project.
1: Yes, so this was this was um, it was because it was funny, and it also was a way of when when we write about things and talk about things it's easy to become abstracted it's really easy to um, forget that we're part of the world that we're talking about, um, especially in the sciences and so I, I wanted to I wanted to do something that would put me and put the book firmly back into the world of um, metabolic biogeochemical cycles that it was discussing. so I thought that by feeding it to a fungus to letting it be um, to let it be digested by its own subject matter, and then for me to eat those mushrooms, uh, would be a way to to write us all firmly back into into the story of wet, warm, um, living story of life. So, it was it was a way of um, closing the circuit. And the mushrooms were great, and that was one part of it. But another part is that we've got um, a sound ecologist, a, a friend of mine and my brother, who's a musician, um, my brother Cosmo, and the sound ecologist Michael Prime recorded using electrodes, the bioelectrical activity of the fungus as it was digesting the book. And then he converted these electrical signals into a sound. And so these sounds that you hear, the fungus is not itself producing these sounds, but the sounds were a way of making perceptible uh, the activity of the fungus as it's eating the book. And so then Cosmo and I have turned these sounds into a song, which we're going to be releasing very soon for the launch of the book in the UK. So the, um, the saga continues.
0: It's just brilliant. I can't wait to to hear the song and hopefully I can play it for everyone listening so they can um, enjoy it too. (laughs) Merlin, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your brilliant insights and congratulations on this book, which is um, a real delight and it seems like something to keep returning to and, um, and to keep expanding one's minds and challenging our preconceptions. Thanks so much for having me. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.